Good morning, and welcome again to St. Paul's. As we begin, would you pray with me? Father, flood this place now in your spirit. Fill us and fill this church, that by the spirit we would see the face of your son, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. So I want you to try to imagine that you're living in the earliest years of the church, say A.D. 50, a couple decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when Christianity was just this fringe religious movement, this weird sect of Judaism that most people didn't know anything about. And you're living in some town in Galatia, which is a part of uh, the Roman Empire that's now central Turkey. And you've heard about these people, the Jewish people, who are from a faraway country, they live in your town. Unlike everybody else, they don't have any idols. They worship an invisible God. And they're strict with their religious and ethical observance. They're a people set apart in their behavior and their worship. And then one day, some strangers come into town and start talking about how the long-awaited savior of the Jewish people, the Messiah, the Christ, had appeared a couple decades ago. His name was Jesus of Nazareth, and the story goes that he was crucified, died, and raised back to life, and now he's ascended into heaven. And he's poured out God the Holy Spirit upon his people on earth, and now God the Holy Spirit actually lives in the bodies of God's people, and Jesus is coming back to set all things right. But what's really the kicker is that this savior of the Jewish people is actually the savior of the whole world, the strangers say even non-Jews like you. And incredibly, the people who believe in Jesus are now gathering together, Jew and non-Jew alike. That's never happened before. And for whatever reason, you believe this story. You believe it's promised for you. Maybe you see miracles, healings happening among these Christians. Maybe you see the miracle of lives changed, of enemies forgiving each other, of love. And you're like, I want that want that. So you go to one of these Christian gatherings and you say, I'm in. I'm in. I want this for me. What do I need to do? Now, there's been a lively debate up to this point about whether male Christian converts have to be circumcised like faithful Jewish men. And some of the Christians say, yeah, you got to do that. But others say, no, non-Jews don't have to do that to be Christian. And in the midst of this debate, a letter arrives from headquarters, the church in Jerusalem. And the letter says, look, we met, we talked about it. This is what we heard Bishop Jenny preach on last week, the meeting that changed the world to let the Gentiles join the Jesus movement. They say, we met, we decided non-Jews can join the church and they don't have to be circumcised. That's a relief, you say. Terrific, great. So what do I have to do to be a good Christian? And the church leaders look at the letter and they're like, okay, there's a few things in here about not eating food that's been slaughtered in a certain way and you can't be sexually immoral and you're like, amazing. God came to earth. God the Holy Spirit's going to live in my body. I can absolutely do those things. Consider it done. So what else? I, I want to be a Christian, so tell me the rules. And the church leaders are looking at the letter from Jerusalem, turning it over like, mm, there's nothing else in here. And you're like, hang on. You are telling me that the God of the universe became a human being and promises eternal life. And if I want to get on board, there's three rules I have to follow, like don't eat a couple things and stop sleeping around. And the church leaders are like, no, wait, there's got to be more. Maybe they forgot a page. But the church in Jerusalem didn't forget a page. 
That's it. Those are the rules. That's the extent of the rules of the Christian law for non-Jews, such as it is. And maybe your response to this is like, awesome. Life after death, I can do whatever I want. In the meanwhile, free pass. Or maybe your response to this is like, no way that can be right. Something this big needs a response from me that's equally big. There have got to be rules for this thing. And don't we just have these kinds of responses as Christians today? The whole, like, I'm not perfect, just forgiven. Do, as, do what I want as long as I believe the right stuff. It's God's job to forgive me. Versus faith means a set of rules about what to do and how to do it and who to do it with. And you've got to act and look and be a certain way. Like be a good Anglican or a good Catholic or a good evangelical, whatever any of those things mean. Because as much as we might look at the extensive, detailed Jewish law and say, who could keep that perfectly? Freedom can be its own kind of problem, too. Like I was listening to this radio show on the psychological effect of the pandemic, and the doctor was saying what was so hard was the sheer uncertainty of it. And the people who got hit the hardest were the people who craved the stability of routine and rhythm, and that just got rocked. People need structure, that we, we need guidelines, and if there aren't rules, then what's being a Christian all about? Without rules, what does the Christian life look like? How do you do it? How do you decide to do this instead of that? So that's the context for our reading from Galatians this morning, the question of rules. We're getting to the end of our Story of Everything preaching series, 20 weeks through the whole Bible, start to finish, tracking with 100 days of Bible reading through 100 essential passages of Scripture. And now we're in the section of the New Testament. That's the part of the Christian Bible that talks about Jesus' life and, uh, and his church. We're in the section of the New Testament called the Epistles, which means letters. And these are letters that were sent by the early Christian leaders to various churches uh, in the Middle East and in Europe. The authoritative, spirit-led teaching of the apostles that became part of the Bible. Most of the letters in the New Testament were written by and sent by the Apostle Paul, the namesake of this church, who was initially someone who had persecuted the church, but then had a miraculous turnaround and became the, church's, uh, the early church's greatest missionary and arguably its most important theologian. Paul's letters to the churches offer teaching about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And some of the letters are encouraging, and some are instructive, but in the letter to Galatians, which we heard today, Paul's displeased because the Galatians seem to have been tempted, the church in Galatia, this region, seem to have been tempted by the lure of rules, that Christians would have to obey the historic Jewish law, do this and that, including circumcision. And that's where our reading begins. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. It'd be great if you could follow along on your phones or in the pew Bible in front of you. Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Now here in verses 1 to 6, Paul's making a really important claim. He's saying, not only does circumcision, the question's like, do you have to be circumcised to be, uh, to be a Christian? And he's saying, not only does circumcision not get you anything, it actually cuts you off, no pun intended, cuts you off from what Jesus did for you. Look, Christianity is all about what it means to stand before a holy God, even though we all sin. It's about getting right with God in some. And the way you get right with God, Paul says, isn't through following a law that you can't obey. 
It's the faithfulness and righteousness of Jesus that restores you to God despite your sins. It's his righteousness. It's his goodness. It's his faithfulness. That's what covers you. That's what holds you. That's what justifies you before God, Paul says. And the way you get that justification for yourself is not by anything you can do, but by trusting that Jesus has done for you what you can't do for yourself. That is by having faith. And if you try to add obedience to the law to your faith, sort of a belt and suspenders approach, it actually makes your faith null and void. Because if you do that, you're in effect saying, faith isn't enough, Jesus isn't sufficient, I need the law too. I need to add something that I can do. Adding the law to your faith is like if you were doing trust falls at a team building exercise at work, and you showed up with a helmet on, covered head to toe in bubble wrap, and you're like, I'm ready to trust. It's like sort of missing the point, Stuart, you know? Faith or law, you can't have both. You've got to pick. So if you follow the law, say by being circumcised, you're not really trusting. You're not really having faith. If you're wearing suspenders, you don't really trust your belt. And if you don't have that trust, that faith, then you're not benefiting from the thing that you have faith in, which is to say Jesus' faithful self-sacrifice. In Christ, Paul says, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Paul says it there in verse 6. The only thing that counts in the life of the Christian, listen to this, the only thing that counts in the life of a Christian is faith working through love. Faith working through love. That's what counts. That's what matters. That's what adds up. That's what has effect. Faith working through through love. The Christian life, Paul says, looks like faith working through love. So what's that look like? Look at verse 13. You are called to freedom, brothers and sisters, but don't use your freedom to indulge yourself, but become enslaved to one another through love. Because if you bite and devour each other, you'll consume each other. And that's intense language. Paul's pointing out something at the core of being human, which is that none of us is really free, not in the sense that we usually think about freedom. Like, if freedom is being able to do whatever you want, that's a pretty sorry version of freedom, actually. Because then you're basically a servant of what you want, your wants, your desires, and why do you even want what you want? Do any of us know? At bottom? If freedom means being able to do whatever you want, That means you're basically a walking itch that you can scratch at any time. What a disappointing vision of what it means to be human. You can be free in the sense that nobody's telling you what to do, but that's not actually freedom. It's just a hidden servitude to what Paul calls the desires of the flesh. Verse 16, don't gratify those, he says. Instead, live by the Spirit. Now we're getting into it. Okay. Live by the Spirit, which is to say, live according to the Holy Spirit that God has given you. The flesh and the Spirit, these two things are opposed, Paul says. They want different things. They pull you in different directions. Now, Paul has this long list of the obvious works of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, etc. This is not meant to be like a definitive catalog. It's more of a verbal collage a picture of vices that collectively lead to chaos and ruin. Like the Garden of Earthly Delights, this triptych by the 15th century painter Hieronymus Bosch, 
This is an all ages service, so I'm not gonna leave this up too long. <laughs> you look at it pretty close. Uh, but you get the idea, the left panel is the purity of the Garden of Eden. The middle panel is the humanity's turn to fleshly gratification, and it descends into the nightmare of the right panel. Let's take that down before I get in trouble. And just because there's no Christian law against these things doesn't mean they're okay. Those who do these things won't inherit the kingdom, Paul says. But the reason you don't do them isn't because there's a specific prohibition against each one, like here's how much debauchery you're allowed, here's how much idolatry you're allowed, not very much, here's how much, you know, like, here's how many drinks you can have and still be a Christian. No, there's not a specific prohibition about these. Rather, it's the whole Christian life is about not gratifying the flesh, but instead walking in the Spirit. And living or walking in the Spirit yields fruit, we see in verse 22. Fruit, that's different than the works of the flesh, like enmity, anger, drunkenness. These are things you can do. You can make these things happen. But you can't force yourself into love, joy, peace, etc. That's fruit of the Spirit. Just like if you have a garden, you don't make the carrots and the lettuce and the radishes sprout and go. You tend your garden, and then the sun and the seed and the water and God does what they will do and brings the fruit up. In the same way, the Spirit makes these good things, love, joy, peace, etc. The Spirit makes these good things come to fruition in the lives of people who live by the Spirit. And so here we finally arrive at the answer to that question that I had you ask at the outset. Imagine yourself as an early Christian convert, asking, what do I do if I don't have the rules? How do I live a Christian life? What's that look like? Is it a free pass? And the answer is no. Just because there's no law doesn't mean a free pass. The way you live instead is by walking with the Spirit. And that takes work. It's a mistake I think a lot of Christians make to think that free, the freedom that is in Jesus Christ, which is real freedom, but to think that that freedom means there's no effort. There's so much effort. But it's not the effort of being scrupulous about a law, like, oh, did I do that right? Did I stay under the speed limit? Did I meet that tax deadline? No, it's the effort of intention, of remembering why it is that you do what you do. And it's the effort of attention, of attending to that Holy Spirit within you, the Holy Spirit who brings forth the fruit that you know have no power of your own to grow. It's the effort of remembering on a day-by-day, hour-by-hour basis that if you are a Christian, wherever you go and whatever you do, the Holy Spirit is walking with you. And I'm not speaking metaphorically here. This is not a symbol. God is now your companion. He's not waiting in the atrium. God, the Holy Spirit, is with you right now in good and bad, sickness and death, sickness and health, life and death. But the desires and works of the flesh, they're noisier and flashier than the Spirit is. And if you're indulging yourself in those, then you're going to render yourself insensate to the Spirit. You're you're not going to be able to hear the Spirit's soft voice. You're not going to be able to feel the Spirit's gentle touch. It doesn't mean the Spirit's not there. It's just it deadens you to the Spirit. If you're a Christian, if you've been baptized, whether you're all in, or maybe you're feeling guilty because you haven't been doing it right, whatever that means, You've received the seal of the Holy Spirit. This divine reality is within you now, in your heart, right now. You can greet the God who's with you. God's with you right now. 
God woke you up this morning to a, a morning that you weren't promised and has walked with you every second of this day to this moment, whether or not you were paying attention. And if you're not a Christian, if you're spiritually exploring, there is no time like the present to pray here and now and to give yourself to Jesus as Savior and Lord, as someone who you can trust, as someone who you can follow. You don't have to have the perfect words. You just have to have a sincere heart. And this reality, this promise is waiting for you. And it will change your life. It won't happen overnight, at least not most of the time, but it's so liberating because we... We can't always change the circumstances that we live in, but anybody can turn inward at any time. And everyone's invited to the salvation that Jesus offers. If I'm, if I'm telling you anything at all that's worth taking away this morning, it would be this, that God is with you in a real way. And it is simply a matter of remembering and attending beyond the stuff that usually claims our attention. This is something you can do now, you can do it later today, you can do it this week if you remember the sermon. Your life is full of reminders of God's presence if you will only pay attention. And whenever you catch a glimpse of God in the ordinary, turn, turn to the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. Offer your thanks, ask for guidance, and pray for strength. This is what it means to live a Christian life, to walk, to live with the Spirit, and of a faith that works through love. Amen.